0: Hello. Last week's interview with Stephen Fry about his friendship with J.K. Rowling and sympathy for transgender persons certainly stirred up passions. And, judging by the response to our interview on social media and in the press, Stephen's call for peace fell on deaf ears. This week in our podcast, passion is also
1: evident from a somewhat surprising source. You lobby your MP and you lobby... anyone connected with the BBC that you know, and ask, how are you fighting the good fight?
0: That's Peter York, the cultural commentator and broadcaster best known for co-authoring the official Sloan Ranger handbook back in the 80s. He's now written another book, The War Against the BBC, with Professor Patrick Barwise, and I'll talk to him about it in a moment. Peter and I were both in the audience at the Voice of the Listener and Viewer's Autumn Conference this Tuesday when the BBC's Director of Nations, Roderick Talfan-Davis, revealed that, as a result of inflation, the BBC's funding gap had gone up from £285 million to £400 million. More cuts, in other words, are coming. Peter York, who joins me now, is sympathetic to the BBC but was also quite cross with them on Tuesday.
1: Why, Peter? I was cross because Rodri Davis in describing the BBC's problems failed to mention the BBC's most important problem which is a political one it's not about technology it's not about markets it's not about some stretching the BBC's resources it's the fact that this government has created that you know, it's-the-money-stupid problem, for the BBC. The deal that George Osborne did in 2015 has resulted in a real-terms 30% fall in the BBC's income from public funds, meaning the licence fee. Successive things that this government has done, like imposing the over-75's costs on the BBC have added to that problem. Then the licence fee freeze, which was for the next two years, which was estimated at a hit of 250 million to the BBC's uh, top line, in a time of runaway inflation, means they lose something like 400 plus million. It was wrong of him not to mention that. I understand it politically, but it was wrong.
0: Well, you've said that there's a war against the BBC. It's under threat as never before. And you say in the cover of your book, an unprecedented combination of hostile forces is destroying Britain's greatest cultural institution. That's a pretty big claim. Is this a coordinated conspiracy, in your view? Or is it just that a group of people, this government in particular don't like the
1: idea of publicly funded organisations. The war against the BBC has been uh, um, fought for decades. What's happening now is that those convergent interests are more insistent. It's uh, what I call the one more shove comrades and we'll kill them uh, uh, situation. And it's become altogether more vicious as the Tory party has become altogether a more totally free market and very much less mixed economy. The old consensus, one-nation, mixed-economy Tories have been thrown out of the basket.
0: Does this mean, in your view, that you can't have, as it were, a rational discussion about the future of uh, the BBC with the present Conservative government, because you think they're so ideologically opposed, they won't listen.
1: I think uh, three things are in play here amongst the BBC's enemies. One is an ideological aversion to anything that's called public service. So they're small government people. Second... There is a related view that the BBC's huge market, huge brand, huge trust occupies a space which other people could make lots of very, very profitable money out of. And then there's a, th- with politicians, there's a third concern the avoidance of scrutiny and criticism. And this A government and its supporters contain an extraordinary number of people who are very, very sensitive about scrutiny and criticism and believe, amazingly, that the BBC is a Marxist organisation that wants to scrutinise and criticise this government all day long.
0: But, you see, Peter, I would say that that, people could have said that over the last 20 years, maybe, or certainly over the last 15 years. And what's different now, I suppose, is the fact that there are alternatives, or they argue that there are alternatives to the BBC, and there's no need for significant state intervention. Now, you've said that the BBC is Britain's greatest cultural institution. A lot of people would argue that was true in the past, Why do you say it's true now?
1: If you look at what are called the public purposes of the BBC, these are not matched or paralleled in any way by commercial broadcasters. What people are saying is there's lots of stuff around, there's lots of drama, there's lots of entertainment... Nobody has put together a news and current affairs organisation that in any way matches what the BBC does for the people of Britain. For that matter, when you come to those areas of British-made, brit relevant live, fresh, local, entertainment, comedy, etc., nobody does that either.
0: I think of you as a sort of a, a metropolitan figure, but uh, you uh, equally do believe that the local radio, which is just being cut back, whatever the BBC says, there is a switch, partial switch to digital, but local radio effectively ceases to become local radio at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Yes. Do you, as a, I would say a metropolitan figure,
1: really think that really matters? Yes, I do. And when you say, I'm metropolitan, yes... I absolutely am metropolitan. I live in SW1, and I was born and raised here and all that stuff. At the same time, too, I am by trade a market researcher. I have spent evening after evening, decade over decade, listening to people up and down the country, the regions and nations, to- talking about what they want, what's relevant to them.
0: And you're convinced that BBC Local Radio is both relevant and essential to them. A lot of people would say it's needed more than ever because most newspapers are pulling back, pulling out.
1: I would say it's needed more than ever. One particular argument for that is the death of local newspapers, the tragedy of local newspapers across the Western world. This, this is being paralleled in, um, in America, for instance, and it's, got, it, it's worse there. But if you you don't know what's going on in your community and your big town or your county, because the local newspaper industry has died, you need the BBC local radio more than ever.
0: Now, you've described how antagonistic you believe this government is. You've talked about the hostile forces, commercial forces, mentioned in your book The Sunday Times or The Times Empire, really the Murdoch Empire... Daily Mail, uh, and so on. But you also talk about certain widespread myths about the BBC that you want to knock down. What are the myths, you think, that should be knocked down? There's a whole list of them.
1: One is that the BBC is manned and womaned entirely by metropolitan Marxist cannibal paedophiles. I can tell you that is not the case. The BBC, unlike, let us say... Um, national daily papers, has 50% of its employees outside the capital. The second thing is that the BBC is an enormously over-resourced and over-manned organisation. And to perpetuate that myth, people constantly say that the BBC's top line is £5 billion. Now, If you did the first GCSE module in business, you would know that to cram together the accounts of, on the one hand, a publicly funded organisation, and on the other, a commercial one, and read it as if the top line meant the same things, is illiterate. The BBC's real income from public funds is at most 3.8 million. It has a very, very effective commercial organisation, which acts as commercial organisations do, and at the end of the day, what the BBC gets out of that 1.2345 billion, because it's going up very fast, it's very effective, is something like... 150 to 250 million to add to its resources to pay for programmes and people. And the right-wing press constantly says 5 billion, 5 billion, 5 billion. It's less than 4. The reality of the BBC's resources are A, that it's less than 4 billion. B, in a time... Hugely rising inflation for the things that the BBC buys, you know, talent, rights, filming resources, etc. The inflation in that area is nearer 20% than 10% and constant knocks. So the idea of the BBC as what Paul Dacre called it a behemoth is a lie. It's simply a lie. Incidentally, look at the top line of Sky. The top line of Sky absolutely dwarfs the BBC. And the top lines of the BBC's various... You might describe them as international competitors... ..also dwarf the BBC.
0: So you're arguing the BBC is extremely efficient? I mean, there's always room for more efficiencies.
1: There's always room for... I heard the night before last... I heard a very efficient businessman, to wit Tim Davey, the director general of the BBC, who came in from my world, the private sector marketing world, and is an extremely effective businessman and who built up the commercial arm of the BBC to become the greatest business of its kind, i.e. the international distribution and collaboration agency of a national broadcaster, there's nothing like it in the world to say, look we have paired everything to the bone we have become recognised over the last decade as being highly efficient in our activities but at some point over the next 18 months the elastic is going to break because we are required to we require ourselves to do things that we will no longer be able to afford. And there's real pressure on news of all kinds. The international and national news services, dedicated news services, local news, etc., etc. All sorts of cuts are being planned because they have to. We haven't seen anything yet in terms of cuts.
0: But you see, the public is going to say, perhaps be sympathetic, but it's going to say, hold on a minute, look at what's the cuts that are happening in the health service, look at the cuts in yeah. education, look at the rate of inflation. The BBC will just have to take its share, and an incoming Labour government faced, if it is a Labour government in two years' time, faced with these demands will may well take that view. So the, this, even if uh, the external critics were to accept your analysis... There's a massive fundamental
1: funding problem hitting the BBC. How do you deal with that? Look, thing one, the BBC has taken its punishment early. It's taken its hit already. 30% decline in real terms in the public funding of the BBC from 2010 to 2020 as compile by the voice of the listener and viewer, with further cuts piled upon that. Views of the BBC's funding are defined by people who have big platforms. People who have big platforms tend to be very hostile to the BBC and therefore utterly to distort the picture. With a national press which didn't have that kind of agenda about the BBC, people would not have that particular financial animus about the BBC.
0: Are you arguing that in this case, therefore, the BBC should be allowed to increase the licence fee at the end of this two-year freeze period, even if it coincides with cutbacks elsewhere, that the BBC is such a cultural asset that that should be allowed to happen?
1: Well, let's think about the scale of... 3.8 let's call it 3.8 billion for argument's sake at its current frozen level and think what that means compare it to central government spending compare it to losses and frauds during the pandemic the reality is that in relation to its role in our you know in social cohesion and our culture the bbc is very inexpensive, it's small. And the things that mean the difference between life and death for various news services are rounding up errors in central government's budget. And in any case, it's worth reminding everybody constantly, this is not central government's budget. It acts as if it were central government's budget, but it's not, it comes from every one of us. And it's very, very good value.
0: As you've outlined, Peter, uh, the BBC's under intense financial pressure. In my view, they've been salami slicing, uh, not being open with people about the cuts they've made, but those cuts are now being more apparent. What do you think they should do in future? Uh, and crucially, who should take the decision about
1: what substantially they cut, if they have to? Well, one of the interesting things about the BBC, which is constantly said to be out of touch, metropolitan, all those things, not only is it all over the country, it does constant and very good research. It has very good researchers. It does listen to people. It's got the basis of a consultation in that. The BBC should be asking people, uh, should be telling people about the financial fix they're in, and say, you know, how would you like us to make these decisions?
0: It should be presenting choices, should it, and saying we've got to do something, but what do you
1: want us to do? Yes, it should certainly be listening. It should be presenting its problems and making the listeners and viewers part of the decision taking process.
0: Now people often talk about alternative sources of funding, but I think most people agree when they look at the technical difficulties that subscription and other things are four or five years off. So we won't let's assume therefore that for the moment anyway we're sticking with the license fee. One of the things, and go back to the question I put to you at the beginning, you're a very powerful advocate for the BBC and some people would think you're more powerful and more outspoken advocate than the BBC and you get frustrated with them. But the BBC are in this classic cleft stick, aren't they? They need things from government and also they're supposed to be impartial in their news reporting. And a result of those two factors, they often don't promote their own case. And, for example, coming up in the near future some sort of broadcasting bill, and the BBC needs things off government in that broadcasting bill. So on the one hand, it probably agrees with you. On the other hand, it's probably
1: scared to say so publicly. What should it do? You're absolutely right, and I understand in principle why the BBC should be very nervous of this government, very keen not to pick fights with it. But... That only takes you so far. There are situations, and we've seen them illustrated over the past couple of years, where whatever the BBC does, however much it makes nice to government, they're still inclined to top slice wherever they can. And that's an ideological vendetta. It's not a matter of the public purse. So, they should be clearer about describing their situation. Now, here's the centre of the BBC's conundrum. I know that when people have wanted to talk about our book and talk to us about our book on the BBC, wise old heads have said, do you know to uh, uh, presenters and producers. Best not, really, because it might look like navel-gazing. In other words, don't do it. Best not. But the fact is, the BBC is part of the national picture, and if it doesn't report on a crucial part of the national picture, namely our broadcasting ecology, then there's a democratic deficit. There's a real problem there.
0: What you've said about your book there actually was supported at the BLB conference by Helen Bowden, a former director of news, who said that she was surprised she understood the difficulties but how little uh, publicity the book came. And I'm not one for publicising books or praising them particularly, but yours is the most, The War Against the BBC, is the most detailed and authoritative analysis I've ever read about the BBC's finances and cultural purposes... And it has received very little attention on the BBC, but I've also looked for any criticism of it which is based... Or any suggestion that, an- analytically, you've got it wrong, any facts are wrong. That hasn't happened. You've got it yeah, in it must one. Be it must be quite frustrating. must be quite frustrating. You must be saying to
1: the BBC, do I have to do all your work for you? I Look, I quite understand their conundrum, but I believe... I've not been privy to those meetings. I didn't go into the Treasury with George Osborne in 2015 after he'd had six meetings with Murdoch and his friends. It is a problem for the BBC, but I think they have to be bolder about it.
0: Well, they have to be bolder, but they'll be bold only if they carry the country with them, carry the licence fee payer. And my bone with the BBC... And I understand that dilemma about arguing about their own future, but my bone with the BBC is that they're not open about the cuts they've already had to make. It's mm. evident in mm. radio, mm. in the quality of what's happening. You have two news services about to be brought together now. We've just had the World Service significantly cut in local radio. We've had local radio, as we said, ceasing to be local radio at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But the BBC is very reluctant yes. to spell all this out to its audience, so the people, its greatest supporters, don't really understand what's happening.
1: I think you're absolutely right. I saw Tim Davy on a stage the night before last, in general terms, playing a blinder about the role of the World Service, the definition of impartiality, all that stuff, and saying that cuts would soon have to come that the elastic would eventually break, but not spelling out what I've just spelt out to you.
0: But the problem is that what then happens is the government said, you're trying to blackmail us. And they'll also say, oh, the BBC always threatens to get children's first and those sort of things. But I think it's interesting, if you look at the number of MPs who are now raising concerns about the cuts in local radio. Well, they tend to do that because they, they see their own platform. It's a platform mm. for them and, and so mm. on, and a way of winning local support. But they're going to apply pressure. So it's ironic that in Parliament the pressure will come from MPs, but in the rest of the country there's a large group of people wanting to support the BBC and waiting for a lead, and you could argue not getting it.
1: You could argue not getting it. You absolutely could. There are outside organisations and swiftly constituted groups like the British Broadcasting Challenge. But that alone isn't enough to make a break in the wall of hostile, very well-resourced, hostile propaganda about the BBC, which is absolutely everywhere. If you analyse out an organisation like Defund the BBC, you realise that it's pure astroturf. By which you mean? By which I mean AstroTurf, this wonderful American term for organisations which appear to be spontaneous, organically arising, local, embedded organisations, but which are actually invented by lobbyists and PR companies. America is full of things. They have no roots. America is full of these things, many of them sponsored by the Koch brothers. There's only one left now, but at great scale. But the whole question of the Tea Party, how did it arise? Who was there? What was local? What was K Street Washington lobbyists is an eternal one. Lots of people here have taken their cue from an American political technology... And so that sort of organisation is AstroTurf, where you don't have real grass, you roll out plastic grass from a roll.
0: Well, one people watcher has emailed in to say, what can listeners do to save the BBC? What would your advice be to people who are listening, agree with you and are almost in despair
1: about this? Well, I have to say, read our book, because it's a resource centre with a thousand footnotes and five appendices, which will put you right about all these things, which will give you the confidence to take your argument to the highest hills. Then I would say get in touch with the British Broadcasting Challenge and then you lobby your MP and you lobby anyone connected with the BBC that you know, and ask, how are you fighting the good fight? Are you fighting the good fight in the right way?
0: And finally, Peter, I understand your arguments. I share them, most of them. I'm still slightly surprised by your passion. What's the reason for it? You could support lots of worthwhile
1: organisation. Why is this one so central to you? Because I'm very interested in media as a whole... I'm president of the media society. I'm very aware that our media ecology is the key to social cohesion in this country and in a lot of other countries. And if you look at America now, which is practically ungovernable, one of the key factors in that of ungovernability is the fact that they don't have anything approaching a BBC. So they don't have facts in common. 30% of the American electorate believe that Trump was cheated out of the 2020 election. That makes countries ungovernable. If we don't have facts in common, we're not even starting as a democratic country.
0: And you believe in the end that the BBC is absolutely central to democracy?
1: I believe that the BBC is central to democracy. It's sometimes terribly cautious and sometimes terribly stodgy, but sometimes it's unutterably brilliant. You know, if you go through the roster, because there are many BBCs. There's an arts BBC, there's a shiny floor entertainment BBC, there's a sports BBC, there's a a completely different local organisation in the BBC, there are all sorts of wonderful things within the BBC, and all sorts of things that are annoying and cautious and bureaucratic and stodgy. But I think overall the combination is very, very good for this country.
0: Peter York, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much.
0: My thanks to Peter York. His book, co-authored with Professor Patrick Barwise, is called The War Against the BBC and is published by Penguin. It is the most persuasive case for the BBC I have ever read. And you can find the address of the VLV, the voice of the listener and viewer, on our website. And that's it for this week. It's Black Friday, of course, and what better way to spend your money than supporting a podcast that has just educated and informed you? I don't know if I'd but at least we tried. Yes, please do support this podcast by subscribing at our new rate of just £1.99 per month. By doing so, you can help ensure our survival, as well as having access to my weekly newsletter, plus bonus content, such as our extended interview with Stephen Fry last week. You'll find the link to subscribe on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform. And do let us know your thoughts about our podcast and other guests you'd like us to talk to. You can get in touch on Twitter by using at BeebRoger, or on Mastodon using at Bolton at mastodonapp.uk, or you can send an email to roger at rogerboltonspeebwatch.com. And if you didn't know already, this podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios, and it was a Good Egg production. Until next time, goodbye.